So, uh, welcome again to Christ Church. Uh, it's really, again, let me just say what a joy it is to be with you and for Nicole to be baptized. And um, So I just want to welcome you. Uh, for those of you visiting, uh, we're glad you're here worshiping with us. Um, let me just uh, make the announcements about what's uh, coming ahead uh, in, in Christ Church in the, in the, couple, in the next couple months. In the month of May, we are uh, having a, a four-week uh, Christ Church 101. It's a dinner and a class and discussion um, that's going to be every Thursday, the four Thursdays in May. So um, if, if you're uh, either you've been in the, part of this church for a while, or if you're just uh, kind of getting started, this is a great opportunity to find out what do we believe, what, what's our vision, what are we about. And so let me. Uh, our hope is that as many of you as possible would come and uh, participate in that. It's going to be a meal. Uh, we'll, we're going to hire uh, some uh, babysitters, so there'll be childcare provided, and then um, I'll I'll talk a bit about the vision of the church, some of our uh, theology, what we believe, and then we'll also have time for question and answer. So you ask questions. You know, why do we do this? Things like that. So let me just encourage you to be part of that. And then in June, uh, we're going to start summer barbecues. So uh, every Wednesday, we'll just get together, grill up play volleyball, play home run derby, you know, kids play, whatever. It's a great time. We did it last summer. And so uh, you can look forward to that in, in the months ahead. Um, so uh, let's um, uh, pray now as we, uh, as we come and we look at God's word. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your abundant uh, faithfulness that we are reminded of this morning that we are not here because of who we are, how good we are, what we've done, we are here because of your abundant mercy. You are not—you are not at all what we would have imagined. You surprise us, and we ask that you to surprise us again with your word. Surprise us with your goodness, your patience, your love, and uh, that there is a God in heaven. Um, that there is hope. There is hope for us. There is hope for sinners. So open your word to us. Send your Spirit into our hearts. Um, for those of us who know you, that we would love you more. And for those of us here who don't know you or don't know what we think about you, uh, would you use this as a time uh, to draw um, to draw those uh, to yourself? And so we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, we're continuing, continuing to study through the, the Gospel of Luke. If you have a Bible with you, you can open up to Luke chapter 7. Uh, or you can follow along in the bulletin. Um, so we look at this text. Uh, it's a... We have some delicate issues here. Um, uh, questions of sexuality, um, uh, uh, homosexuality, sexual abuse, all these things, and uh, the, com- the complexity and delicacy of, um, of sexuality in our culture, they all come to us in the Bible, in this text, powerfully. And uh, we find uh, that if we're going to be a real church, real with one another, real about life, Real about the gospel and how it impacts life, then uh, this is this is a text that's going to be important for us. So, let's read together Luke uh, chapter seven, verses thirty-six to fifty. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. That's Jesus, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would 
have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of our Lord, and it's for our good. Thanks be to God. Um, so one of the things uh, that our culture is, is constantly reminding us is how important sexuality is to who we are as people, how deeply ingrained in our sexuality is. You know, we want sex in our movies, we want sex in TV shows, we want sex in the news reports. And so uh, we're very often uh, thinking about sexuality, um, talking about sex, sex, dreaming about sexuality. And one of the most uh, probably telling aspects of this kind of sexualization of our culture is how uh, predominant the pornography industry is. Let me just give you a few uh, statistics. Um, as, as of 2003, there were 1.3 million pornographic sites on the internet. 1.3 million. That's 2003. So exponentially more now. Uh, the total porn industry revenue for 2006, $13.3 billion in the United States. And just to give you a frame of reference, uh, box office sales in the following year for Hollywood movies was $9.6 billion. 13.3 for, uh, for pornography, 9.6 for Hollywood movies. Uh, U.S. adult DVD uh, rentals in 2005, almost a billion. Um, number of hardcore pornography titles released in 2005, 13,588. 13,000 uh, hardcore pornography movies. More than 70% of men from ages 18 to 34 visit a, porno- a pornographic site in a typical month. Approximately t- 20% of all internet pornography involves children. 100,000 websites offer illegal child pornography. And you know, this is actually true in the church. This is an epidemic in the church as well. Just a few things. Uh, over half of evangelical pastors in- admitted to viewing pornography in the last year. And 57% of pastors say that addiction to pornography is the most uh, sexually damaging issue in their congregation. So what that tells us is that sex is a huge industry in our culture, in the United States, a huge industry. And yet, uh, at the same time, we're becoming far more aware of how um, <coughs> central sexuality is to the, you know, the center of who we are, to our identity. Um, you know, ever since uh, Sigmund Freud uh, was working the first part of the, of the 20th century, uh, he demonstrated that, that uh, sexuality is, is uh, extremely important uh, for human life. In fact, he said that all of our desires 
uh, everything that we're doing is being driven by sexual impulse. Now, as Christians, we wouldn't we wouldn't agree with that, that everything is, is impacted by sexual impulse. But, um, but I think for that reason that we have that awareness that, that so many of the uh, scandals of the Roman Catholic Church are coming out because people are going to counseling and they're beginning to talk about what things are shaping how I live my life. And they're finding out that they were abused um, sexually. And in fact, uh, if you have not uh, been abused sexually, the statistics say that you definitely know someone who has been. Um, that that's uh, uh, sexuality is impacting us uh, tremendously, and so what, what we have in our culture is simultaneously kind of wild, open, free sexuality. Let's have sex with very little idea of what is God made sex for, what does it mean, what is the, what is the purpose of it, combined with a, a deep awareness that sexuality is is impacting our lives and our hearts and who we are and identity. It's impacting us. But what that means is that, that we have a culture full of people walking around. Whose, uh, whose hearts have been damaged and marred by sexuality. So, on, uh, on the one hand, you know, we need to, well, okay, what does the Bible say about sexuality? You know, the Bible says sex should be in marriage between one man and one woman. We're actually going to talk about that in September when we uh, begin to study the book of Genesis. But another question we have to ask is how does God deal with those who, whose lives have already been hurt? are already taken over by sexuality. How does God deal with that? Um, you know, that, uh, how does God uh, deal with those who in the secret parts of our hearts are wrestling uh, with uh, uh, shame and fear and utter loneliness because of things that we've done and because of things uh, that other people have done to us? How does God deal with, deal with us? Well, we are looking at a powerful, powerful passage in answering that question. And uh, what you have here is a wealthy Pharisee, he's religious guy, he's wealthy, he's upright, righteous, you know, civic leader, and he's having a feast to honor Jesus. And so, uh, in this kind of feast, it would be like, you know, a neighborhood barbecue kind of, neighbor, people can kind of come and go as, as they want, so his door would be open, and so people could come in and, uh, they, you know, stand by the wall for poor, and so this, this woman, um, who... Uh, uh, is called a sinner of the city can come in and she can listen to the conversation and kind of beg for scraps. And uh, even though this text never says that uh, her sin was of a sexual nature, there's kind of hints of that all over this uh, passage. You know, the title that's given to her, uh, a, a woman of the city who was a sinner, uh, was no doubt that was uh, uh, a, a title that meant that she was probably a, a, a prostitute by vocation and a whore by social status. <laughs> in fact, what she does is she comes in and she's crying on Jesus' feet as he's sitting at the dinner table. He's crying on her and, and she lets her hair down and starts wiping the tears off with her hair. And uh, one commentator, uh, Joel Green, on the Gospel of Luke, he says that in this culture, a woman letting her hair down from a, out in public would be on par with her uh, walking out in public topless. In fact, the, uh, the Talmud, which was kind of Jewish religious law, said that if a woman let down her hair in front of another man, that that was so scandalous that it was grounds for divorce. And so uh, here she is, uh, this woman kissing Jesus' feet while he's eating, letting her hair down. And uh, this would certainly be seen by all the men standing there as an erotic display by a local whore. That's what Jesus has it at his feet. And he's not, it's like nothing to him. What's going on? Well, she's weeping. Her heart is, is, uh, is overflowing and uh, her heart is breaking before Jesus. And even though um, 
Uh, the Pharisees and all these other men that are standing around, they only see her in terms of her sexual te- uh, track record. Her sexual history does not define who she is in Jesus' eyes. That's not how he sees her. And uh, to the Pharisee, even to uh, readers, uh, we can't help but think of her as a sexual object. You know, she's at a dinner table doing all these uh, inappropriate things. And yet, uh, there is not an ounce of that in the way that Jesus sees her. He sees something different in her. There's something different. He gets her. He gets what's happening. He knows her life. And so what we're going to do is as we look at this passage, we're going to unpack how does Jesus interact with her in two ways. First, Jesus is not afraid of the sexually sinful. Jesus is not afraid. Many of us are. She's scared of herself. We're afraid. He's not afraid. But secondly, Jesus does not exaggerate sexual sin, but he dignifies the sinner. Jesus does not exaggerate, and we'll talk about what that means. Okay, so first, Jesus is not afraid of the sexually sinful. Now, one of the things that makes um, sexual sin a delicate topic is because sexual sin is so complex. You know, so the, for the, look, you take this woman, for example. In many ways, she's probably, um, uh, you know, lived a, a life of uh, deceiving men, a very immoral life, seeking after pleasure, kind of running after pleasure. But in all likelihood, um, the reason that she's kind of walked in this lifestyle is probably. Um, based on factors that are that are shaping her life. Maybe she she didn't have a husband or a family. She couldn't even provide for herself. And so she had to she had to go into prostitution just to live. Or maybe uh, maybe her family uh, forced her into slavery. It, or forced her into uh, in, in prostitution. Or or maybe she's just uh, she grew up um, being a, a, abused sexually and has a completely uh, skewed idea uh, about what sexuality is and uh, based on how other people have treated her. And so having just Normal, pure, healthy relationships is almost impossible for her. Um, you know, it will probably be, on the one hand, uh, any kind of relationship or contact that she has with a man, uh, her automatic instinct is going to be to sexualize the relationship. Uh, I can't just think of someone being a friend, but I have to sexualize it. But on the other hand, she's, she's probably been so damaged in her life that she would never open her heart, who am I really, uh, to anyone. Her heart would be closed. And so um, she feels alone. She feels contempt for herself because her heart is so easily drawn into relationships that are painful. And then she's ashamed of the pleasure that she gets out of her sexual promiscuity. Look at all that complexity. Look at all that. What people have done to her, what she's doing, her passion, everything is, is, is shaping how, uh, how she enters relationships, how she lives her life. Um, I, I heard an excerpt this week from a book by a woman named Carrie Cohen who uh, wrote a, a memoir called uh, Loose Girl, a, a, a memoir of promiscuity. She kind of reflects on how she had a life where uh, she had well over 40 partners and uh, she was reflecting on uh, the damage that had done, this had done to her and she was beginning to trying to write out all the names of the men that she'd done and uh, this is one of the things she says. For a man, uh, you know, writing out all these names might be a pleasant trip down memory lane, counting up his conquests. But for a girl, it is a whole other story. I had to let these men inside me, wanting uh, that to make me matter to them, wanting it to make me matter. Now, they were just cross outs and question marks. 
At the same point, I gave, at some point I gave up, disgusted with myself, and I crumpled the paper and threw it away. And then she goes on to reflect about these relationships. Using my sex appeal was default behavior. To not do so would have required more effort. Add to this, I was desperate for attention, any attention, and men's interest in my body was the easiest avenue to being noticed. Of course, I confused their base interest with love. I needed to believe it meant something. Don't get me wrong, I don't see myself as entirely innocent. My story is also about addiction. Addiction to power. To the attempt to control others through my body. It is about how desperate I was to feel loved, less alone. How misguided by all those cultural and mixed messages I tried to fill my need with male attention and sex. How as with most addictions, I managed to push everyone away, foiling my greatest intentions. She's hungry for attention, yet is pushing people away at the same time. This excerpt shows how messy, how broken, how polluted sexual sin makes our lives. Um, and what's amazing about this passage is that you have this woman, this woman who's a sinner, uh, hurting life, and yet um, she has no reason in the world to trust a man. I mean, even Jesus. She has no reason to trust the world, and yet she also has no reason. Why, why should she think that, that Jesus should accept her for a second? She doesn't have an ounce of anything to bring to Jesus. And yet she boldly stands up in front of all these rich, respectable men, uh, religious, upright, pure men, and she walks up to Jesus and she starts, this is what it says in verse 38. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anoint them with the ointment. The word that's used there for wetting his feet, you know, that's, she's, it's a word for rain, she's making it rain. She's raining tears, pouring down tears on Jesus' feet. She's sobbing and wiping it up with her, with her hair. And uh, you know what? There's not an inch in her. There's not an inch of this seductive whore coming to Jesus. Not an inch. She's weeping. Her heart is wide open. And you say, how, how, how could she have the courage to do that? How could she, uh, with all the history of, of uh, how relationships with men are, um, come to a man and pour tears on his feet with no desire to seduce? How could she have courage? The only answer is that she believes that Jesus is not afraid of her. She might look at inside her life and say, I can't imagine to look inside. I can't even imagine to look in my past. I can imagine writing a list of all that. I'm just be terrible. I'm terribly scared. And for us, we would maybe even look into her life and say, oh, with all the glory details. But Jesus is not afraid. Jesus is God. He knows, he knows every affair. He knows every man she's seduced. He knows every marriage she's broken. He knows all of them. And he says to her, you're not a monster. You're not subhuman. I'm glad you're here. I, it's not even hard for me to be sitting here at this table in front of all these men and have you weeping on my feet. I, I'm glad that you're doing it. Let me just say to you that uh, many, many of us have darkness, shame inside of our hearts. And Jesus says to us, I, I don't, you're not a monster. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid what's inside of you. How can I be? How can you not be afraid? Well, uh, that leads to our second point. So first, Jesus is not afraid of the sexual sinner. He, he, doesn't, he says we're not monsters. We're not subhuman. He wants us. He wants us to come. That's who he came for. But second, Jesus does not exaggerate sexual sin. 
but dignifies the sinner. Jesus does not exaggerate sexual sin. Now, one of the kind of interesting things about this passage is that um, um, parts of this exchange that Jesus has with the Pharisees, the Pharisee has kind of this thought inside his head. Look at, uh, look at verse 38-9 again. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would have known uh, who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So he has a thought inside his head. And then look what it says, uh, you know, he's having this internal dialogue, and then it says about whether Jesus is a prophet. And then in verse 40, it says, Jesus answered him. He could hear, he's showing that he's a prophet by, I'm going to answer, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm actually not going to look into her sin, I'm going to go ahead and look into your sin. The Pharisee who's sitting here judging the woman. And I'll show you I'm a prophet by looking inside of you. And uh, this, is, uh, this is what he says to, says to him in, in verse 44. He tell, well, he tells him a parable about how, about how those who have been forgiven much love much. And then he says this in verse 44. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But the time... Uh, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. It turns out that Jesus actually finds uh, the Pharisees, this religious guy, self-righteousness. And even just his inhospitality. Ability, that's a word. <laughs> uh, to Jesus, he finds that more offensive than this whole woman's sexual tra- track record. He finds the self-righteousness more offensive. He's like, I'm not, I'm not going to go look at her. I, I got to deal with you first. I mean, move on to her. I got, I got a bigger problem with you, pal. And so, uh, and he looks into her life. And so, the question, we, and what, what this Pharisee has done is he's taken uh, socially unacceptable sins. Uh, you know, adultery, prostitution, and exploded them, blown them up to be way bigger than pride and self-righteousness that he's, that's going on. That's very respectable sins. So one of the things that we have to ask as a, as a church is what, where, when do we do that? What sins are we blowing up in our culture? You know, uh, one of the uh, biggest questions that the church is facing right now is what, what is our view on homosexuality? Um, this, is, this is the sexual question. What does the religious community think about homosexuality? Now, I, to tell you my stance on homosexuality, as I've just said, sexuality is hugely important to our identity and sense of who we are. So I don't think there's any way that God is going to say, well, I'll, I'll stay out of that one. He's going to be involved. He has to be. In fact, he's probably going to be very careful to give us guidelines for that. And I, and I have to tell you, frankly, even if you do just enormous acrobatical exegesis on the Bible, it's very difficult to find the Bible saying anything else than that a homosexual lifestyle is a sin. But on the other hand, homophobia is very real. Homophobia is a very real thing. Um, many Christians would say, I would never be friends with a homosexual. I could, I would never, I could never learn from a homosexual. They could never teach me. I, I could never respect a homosexual. I mean, I, I know a Christian who watches all kinds of uh, movies filled with sin and uh, evil things, but refuses to watch the Ellen DeGeneres show. 
Uh, this is Cher. She's hilarious. So I, I, I do watch. When Cher is watching, I kind of watch. It's very funny. So I'm. Uh, so I don't have a problem with watching the show. And so that's what. That's an exploding a sin. It's, it's a sin, you know, it's a very real sin, but the world's fi- filled with sinners. So yes, the, the church has to say, yes, God has guidelines for, for sexuality. Of course he's going to. Something so personal, of course he's going ha- to be involved in it. But, but we, cannot be, we cannot be led by fear. We cannot exaggerate sins. Now, when we exaggerate sin, it does, it does two things. First of all, it creates a fear, a, a, a culture of fear in the community. That's what homophobia is. It's, it's a fear-driven but secondly, um, when we exaggerate sin, what we're going to do is we're going to have no place in our community for people who have done those sins, whose lives are wrapped up in the sin. There's no space for them. If we're, if we're, if we're blown those sins up, there's not going to be no room here. Let me give you, uh, let me illustrate what I mean. There, uh, there's a, a pastor down in Dallas, he's a young pastor named uh, Matt Chandler, who... Uh, Pastor, he planted a church, a large church, and he was talking. He was talking. I saw a video clip of him talking about why he wanted to be a pastor. And he was saying that there was this one crucial event when he was a freshman in college. Uh, he happened to, in one of his classes, be sitting next to this 26-year-old single mom who uh, was coming back to school trying to get her education. You know, he's this freshman, and he's sitting next to her. And they become friends, and he begins talking to her about spiritual things and. And he and his buddies would go over and watch her son so she could go shopping or go, go out or do whatever. And, you know, she was actually, even while they were doing that, she was in an extramarital affair, you know, with a married man. And they were like, you know, that's, this probably isn't the best idea. And he tried to talk to her about these things. And so uh, he said he had a friend who was a, a musician and they, he was gonna be, there were going to be all these bands playing at this Christian event. And he said, you know, you should come hear my band play, you know, knowing... You're going to hear a message about the gospel. So uh, she says, okay, I'll go hear the band. So they go, and uh, the band plays it's really good. And they're sitting next to each other, and the, um, the pastor gets up and says, okay, it's time for me uh, to give a little talk on sex. And he thinks, oh, no, this is a problem. And then uh, the pastor uh, takes out a rose. He smells the rose. He says, isn't this a lovely rose? Smell it. Here, pass this around. I I want each of you to take a smell of this rose and feel the petals and and, and touch it, feel the texture and all these things. And then he goes into this uh, fear-mongering talk about uh, sex and sexuality. You know, yeah, it's all fun and games until you you got syphilis in the morning and a hippie, or hippies, herpes, all over your face. And so he gets to the end of his talk, and he's at his great crescendo. This is the great climax of his talk. And he says, where's my rose? Pass my rose back up here. And someone passes the rose back up, and it's just mangled. The, the petals are falling all off, and, and it's broken. It's all jacked up. And he says, now who would want this rose? Who would want this rose? This is a great crescendo. And Chandler says, everything inside of him wanted to jump up and yell, Jesus wants the rose. Jesus wants the rose. That's the whole gospel. That's the whole point. What are you doing sitting up there saying, who, wa- who would want this rose? Jesus wants it. Let me tell you, that is exactly what you have in this text. Mangled woman. And Jesus, without flinching, says, come to me. I, I want to give you a new life. And she does. 
And, her, and you know what happens? Her heart opens up and she's pouring out tears of emotion. And she comes close and she's, she feels human. She feels alive. I'm not a sex object. My whole life is not driven by sex. I've been welcomed. I've been embraced. And you know what happens? She gets in the Bible. She ends up in the Gospel of Luke. And now, till the end of history, Christians will be reading about her, that she is an example of all Jesus' disciples in all nations throughout the, till the end of history. That's what Jesus does for you. That's what the gospel is. He doesn't blow up sin and he's not afraid of, 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 of the sexual sinful. He says, come to me. And that's what we are. That's, what, that's the Jesus we worship. That's the Jesus who's brought us together. That's our God. Are you glad? Are you glad that's our God? Let's pray again. <laughs> our Lord, we thank you for the hope in this text. That uh, you uh, you invite uh, those that the world and that even religious communities say are too too dirty, too beyond uh, reach. Jesus, you without a flinch say, "Come to me." Lord, open our hearts like this woman. Help us to love like this woman, and help help us to have the courage and bold and boldness to come to you as well. We just thank you for your grace in Christ's name. Amen.